0: Each month, as I pay the subscription fees for my Simplecast account for both the Hardy and Sons and this Colonel Sean podcast, each month when I pay the Colonel Sean podcast, I'm like, man, I should make another episode. I should talk to somebody. I should, you know, get a guest and have an enthralling conversation. But it's difficult to find the time and to coordinate everything um, because I'm sort of in transition between a couple of things. And it's difficult to plan for a phase in the future when you don't exactly know what that phase is going to be. And so surviving and thriving during the transition sort of between two different life phases in any number of areas can be kind of difficult. And that's what I've been struggling with lately. And so I thought I would fire up the old podcast machine here and talk a little bit about what I'm going through. Um and, and be a bit vulnerable. I feel like when I make YouTube videos or when I post stuff on Instagram um or really put content out there, write something on Medium, I I feel this I always second guess myself and there's this feeling of like, who am I? Like, how narcissistic do I need to be that it's my thoughts that matter and I need to publish something and I need to tell what I'm thinking and and i think there's there's two approaches to that or or two perspectives one is sort of like well everyone needs to know what i know i figured this out and i need to share this with people and there's definitely some content on youtube that i feel that way um that i put out there like when i learn a tip or you know something like that but then there's also the perspective of when i when i do this uh or like when i made the anxiety video or the big hats video or or videos like that it's therapeutic. It's it's me talking through some things and anyone could roll their eyes and say, yeah, you don't need to to do this. You don't need to have these thoughts and publish them. Like, yeah, record the podcast, talk what you want to talk about, uh, talk about what you want to talk about. And then you can just delete it or save it somewhere. Like how egotistical to, to post that. Um, But I wanted to do it anyway, sort of as a test to myself and to see what I could do, um, what I would be comfortable sharing. Uh, but then also there's that that goal of, I know that what I'm going through is not unique. Um, and it can be difficult to find people who who feel these things because it's not something you bring up when you're meeting people or or talking with old friends necessarily of like, hey... I'm struggling with this existential crisis right now. What are you up to? So it's sort of a maybe a coward's way out to an extent of by putting this out there, it's sort of an invitation to say, if you're listening to this, if you're one of the five people listening to this and you feel any of the same things, uh, reach out because these are feelings that we all feel uh, or I think we all feel. Um, And anytime you've got a situation like that, if you can endure it together with somebody who's experiencing the same thing, uh, everybody's experience is, is a little easier uh, and you can find support uh, through that that connection. So I'm experiencing really two transitions in my life right now that I'm going to talk about on this podcast. The first is, well, that no in no order, but one of the transitions is a career transition. I spent about nine... Well, I guess 11 years of my life doing video production by myself, being a one-man band and shooting stuff for nonprofits and small businesses and things like that. When I started with CNN, I was a one-man crew where I would set up the cameras and the microphones and I would conduct the interview, I would edit it and I would send it off. And I'm um, in the middle of trying to like write my experience into a piece on Medium that sort of shows how I got to where I am. And I get asked by people, you know, what did I do to get where I am? And I feel like I just sort of failed forward. I I just kept stumbling into opportunities and met the right people at the right time and had a lot of generosity, a lot of luck, uh, and then married that to a little bit of of preparation uh, and skill. And that's how I got where I am. And and I think what I do isn't unique uh, in most cases, but the fact that I've fostered relationships and seized opportunities when they presented themselves has put me here. And so as I, as I did this for so long as a single person, when I started doing it and it was February 6th, I think fifth or sixth, 2018 that I first got together. Dane called me on uh, to a gig and I think we've talked about this with him, but he called me on to a gig where I ended up running sound, um, but I didn't really know... I was nervous to get into crew work, because I didn't know anything. And, and I feel like when you join a crew, a lot of the crew has worked together before, uh, or you're making it up and you you could get things wrong. But the big thing I was worried about is like, where are the lines between these roles? As somebody who has historically done everything, approaching a situation where it's like, well, this person is the director, and this person is the producer. And for me to to know like, well what responsibility belongs to which person Um, and then add to that a director of photography, uh, an assistant camera operator, um, a gaffer, a grip, a production assistant. And like I said, I was sound engineer and it was exciting to get to be focused solely on sound, to get to be focused solely on any one thing. Um, And I'm a bit of a sound nut and to be able to not have to worry about focus or framing or whether the person on camera is saying the right thing in the right way, uh, whether their intonation is, you know, on key with the script, um, the lighting, the, anything having to do with the production. All I was worried about was, are the sound levels good? Is the mic positioned in a way that gets a very authentic sounding uh, recording? And it was, it was the first time that i really got to dive in and let go of everything else and as a one man band i would set up all the gear and i would sort of let it go to autopilot and then i would ask the i would sit in the interview chair and ask the questions um and hope the camera stayed in focus hope that the sun didn't slowly start coming through a window and suddenly overexpose the entire thing so it was nice to just focus on that one thing and then i've had the opportunity with that same group of people uh, largely that same group of people I've been able to start to make my standard work bigger crews. My standard work, instead of me being a one-man band, I'm able to bring at least one other person, sometimes two or three um, or four or five. And we're able to produce so much more. And I used to think, you know, like, well, oh, what a crazy overhead. If the cameras do all this stuff automatically, do you really need someone to pull focus? Do you really need someone to do this and that? And maybe while it's actually recording, it doesn't make a huge difference. But it's a huge peace of mind. Uh, And it it allows the interview to go more smoothly. And it allows uh, that collaboration allows more thoughtful setups and and, and more unique footage. Because it's not just, well, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to set my lights here. You add in somebody else who says, well, I think we should do it this way. And then the compromise that you find, that collaboration becomes something unique and different Uh, and affected by multiple parties. And so it becomes something different, something bigger, uh, and 90% of the time, something better. And so I've been excited to get into this crew work, uh, even though I was nervous for so long, because I felt like I didn't fit in. And I I felt like the, the imposter syndrome of, you know, I would come in and even though, yes, I have 12 years of professional video production experience but I felt like it was in my little niche and I didn't fit into these big crews. And I think if you dumped me in on like a Hollywood film set, I would be a fish out of water and I would feel very uncomfortable and I wouldn't know what to do, but I could get there. And so th- that's how I felt with just this normal crew work, this, you know, smaller, you know, four five, six person crews. And my goal has now shifted with video production to start to work with bigger agencies. I love doing work with agencies because uh, two reasons. One, they take care of sales for you. You don't have to find clients. The agencies find the clients. They have their departments for that. And then you plug into the process when it just comes to the video production. And the other benefit about that is normally not only is the sale done, but a lot of times the idea is largely formed. And you're brought in at a stage where you can just capture and edit and produce this video without having to walk them through the branding process of, you know, well, you know, what do your customers want to hear? What do your potential clients want to hear? Not what do you think is the most important thing for your your organization or your brand, but what is the most important thing for your customers about your organization or brand. So that whole process, walking them through that writing, uh and the, all the pre-production, that being done by an agency is really really fun. Um, to just get to come in and get down to business. And right now, my business is about 50% agency work and then 50% of my own clients where I do get to to go through that process. And it's fun to do that process. I don't dislike that process, but it does slow things down. And as I thought about all the different roles, and the reason I didn't go into video uh production professionally or pursue it as a career rather was at the time I really didn't know that my job could exist and i I guess it didn't at the time uh because production, even in the early two thousands the like I think it was two thousand twelve that the five d mark two came out that could do video. Um, And so before that, like you needed a big video camera and to do things right, you needed a few people like autofocus wasn't where it is now. Lighting, lighting alone, LED lighting wasn't uh, really available or cheap at the time. And so you needed big lights and to carry all that, you needed people. And so video production required a crew. And so as I approached it as a student, I I knew I loved making videos my entire life, but I didn't want to like major in something and I didn't want to be just an editor or just a writer or just a producer or just a camera operator um and there's people who excel at, at each one of those things individually but I wouldn't want my everyday life to be just camera operator I like so many pieces of the process that it's I feel like I would go a little stir crazy if I like being a full-time editor my hat is off literally to to the people who are full-time editors, because I think it's amazing what they do. And they're very, very good at it. But I couldn't sit in front of a computer all day, every day. I like to get out there and film. But to that, I wouldn't want to just go out and film every day and hand my footage over and never you know see it through. And I also like the ability to you know, produce it and put things together and and frame the idea with the client beforehand. And I also like directing and getting to talk to the talent and letting go of control of the camera and the lighting and all those, uh, all the technical aspects. So for me, I knew from the beginning that I I didn't want to get pigeonholed into one specific area of production. I wanted to sort of do everything. And so with my work being about 50% agency work and 50% my own clients, it gives me this flexibility to, there are days uh, where my job is to just film and hand my footage over and I'm done with it. There's days when I get called on to be a grip essentially and help set up lights and uh, stands and be a part of things. But I'm not worried about focus and framing and audio and all that sort of stuff. And then there's times where footage gets passed to me and I, I edit it and I have no control over how it was captured and anything like that. So, it stays very exciting. I I don't do any one thing over and over and over to the point of exhaustion. Uh, And so it's, it's a very sustainable job creatively for me because there's constantly a different muscle being flexed. I'm getting sort of this full body creative workout and that's, that's very important to me. But so this big transition now is over the past year and a half, really since February, 2018 it's now June, uh, 2019. And i'm I'm trying to find bigger agencies i've been doing a lot of stuff with with two three person crews and we're able to make some good stuff and we're doing budgets anywhere from really like five to twelve thousand dollars, which gets us a couple days of filming with a with a small crew and then a little bit of post production but there's all this crazy cool work that could be done that we're just not doing yet bigger agencies bigger brands bigger commercials bigger audiences and it's difficult to break into that space because you're limited in many ways to your real where you're real your portfolio r-e-e-l your portfolio only shows the things that you've done and so often my clients have had smaller budgets uh And if not a smaller budget, they have some sort of time constraint where we're, you know, working up against a deadline. And that's why the budget's higher so that we can, you know, get it all done on time. And with projects like that, you don't get to take the time to really polish anything. And I have clients who don't want to pay to have things really color corrected properly and who don't have the time uh, to really line up a few shots really thoughtfully. And so it's sort of move and groove, guerrilla style, run and gun trying to get what shots you can and piece it together. And that can be fun. But say, I'm just going to use Nike uh, as a cliche example that I think people don't understand. Say Nike came along and they were like, hey, we want to shoot a commercial. What kind of stuff have you done? And they look at my reel where, yeah, if we want to shoot like a cool football montage, I've got the people. I've got the connections to get the gear. I have the experience with rental houses to, you know, get a cool dolly, lay out the track, rent an awesome camera and get all the lights and stuff, we need to really get some awesome shots. I am fully capable of that, but I haven't done it yet. And so when Nike looks at my portfolio, they see, you know, the the $4,000 project that I cranked out on my own over the course of two weeks for, you know, a grade school, and they see the project that, you know, I'm doing with, with a small non-for-profit where we've got one day to film and, you know, they they have no time for lights and, and things like that. And they're having volunteers for their interviews that only have 20 minute windows. And so you really can't take the time to, to light things perfectly for you. It's, you know, one setup and you're putting three people in that same setup because you don't have the time to break everything down, move to a new location and set it up. And so the videos sort of suffer and it's not a reflection on a lack of capabilities on, on my part it's a reflection on the constraints of the client's schedule and budget. And so to break into this next tier of more polished work, I've been fortunate enough to have a group of people, uh, David Pitt, Brett Hoy, Keith Mies, John Jacobson, Mike Baker, um, and a few others who've helped here and there, where we're, we're volunteering our time and we're creating shots. And we're not creating full videos. We're just working on the portfolio. These sort of concepts of, you know, we could shoot a sweet car commercial. We just haven't. And so we took the time to rig up my truck with uh, the Ronin stabilizer, which I can control remotely, uh, wirelessly, and ran a monitor into my truck. And we got Dale A-Strike from Precision Restorations was generous enough. They were finishing a restoration of a 1969 Charger. And so we drove this thing through forest park. He drove it next to our truck and we got all these shots of, you know, the, the car zooming by with the camera real low to the ground at full speed. And it's not a commercial for them. It's not anything that's, you know, big and polished, but it's one shot that'll go in the portfolio so that if, you know, Nike sees it, they would be like, Hey, these guys can do some good stuff. Like we don't need to see the whole commercial. We know that they could get a shot like this. And so, We've done a few days where we got a team together, completely volunteer to create some concept shots and not even full sequences, just these shots. And so we've done five things now. We we did the, the car shots. We did fruit in slow motion, sort of doing like a high-end commercial, like smoothie uh, commercial kind of look. Um, we did shots of food at Grace Meeting Three and Rick donated all the food and then... Uh, The people at Four Hands were nice enough to donate a few beers and we got to shoot in their upstairs bar and just made some awesome stuff where we got to take all the time we wanted. We got to set up the lights the way that we wanted. We got to move things around and redo it as many times as we wanted and really nail a shot that we could put in our portfolio and say, look at this. Give us the time. Give us the money. And we can create something on this level. And what we're creating is just awesome. Next level polished stuff. We're shooting everything with David's red. Uh, a lot of it's in like 6K. So we're shooting awesome next level stuff. But there is no way to like wait for a client to take a chance on us to do this. We first have to show that we can. And then the next step is finding somebody to hire us to do it. We'll show them that stuff. And so when I'm done recording this podcast, my next thing is I'm going to actually work on this reel a little bit and take these shots. Now that we've completed these five different shoots, take the, Oh, and the fifth one was shooting with a model in union station, doing some long tracking shots. We rented a dolly uh, and set up some pretty serious lighting rigs and, and shots, just some beautiful looking stuff. So the next step is to edit that all together and update the reel and then send that out to some people at these bigger agencies and show them, Hey, we're ready to do whatever you need to do. And it's not just, you know, me and a a box of lights and a mirrorless camera. This is going to be a serious production and you can rest assured that we've got the crew that can tackle it. So it's been fun to do that. And not only is it an experience of demonstrating that we can, but it's also very much been a learning experience. And it's been nice to work on our communication and figure out where there's, you know, stumbles, and where we really excel so that when we do it for a client, we're not doing all of our learning on the day. Um, we, we do a lot of learning and growing every day, every time we shoot, uh, even with clients. But it was nice to sort of do these tests and see where the communication works best, who excels in which roles. And it lets people step into different roles. And it was nice for me on the last shoot at Union Station. Yes, I was the producer. I arranged everything. But on the day... I really sort of took a step back on the first shot. Uh, The first shot was this really symmetrical push in um, on this big, you know, balcony with some awesome windows behind it. And Brett lined up the whole shot and the lighting and David helped a little bit with that. But then I focused on the next shot, which was this long tracking shot through a hallway, this long, narrow hallway was awesome. But I got to direct and, and I wanted that experience of, I didn't want to worry about Anything I didn't want to worry about focus and framing and light. I wanted to worry about the model's expression and the pace of her walk and what the clip looked like. And it was liberating to do that. Once again, sort of like when I got to run sound and really focus on that, I got to be a director. And because we had six people helping out, everyone could sort of fit in and try a different role. And then Mike Baker got to direct one. uh, And then I directed the last one and ran camera on it as well. So it was exciting to to have this sort of playground for a day where not only are we creating something that's going to be genuinely useful for our portfolio and for finding new business, but it was also a really, really unique learning experience uh, and an opportunity to tiptoe into things that we hadn't tiptoed into before. So. As I'm in this transition of, of what do I do to get to the next level? How do I meet these people at bigger agencies? How do they, I show them my reel? How do I get introduced in a way that isn't me soliciting? Because that comes off sort of desperate and like, hey, I'd like to meet with you and talk to you about what I can do. It's always more powerful if you know it comes from a very genuine like, hey, you guys should talk to this guy, Sean, that I've worked with. Um, and other people in the industry and other producers are often a great resource. And what I found sort of contrary to my expectation, is that everybody is super generous and nice. I think the video production industry is one that is so collaborative. And yes, there's competition for the bigger agencies on a certain level, but there's so much crossover at at this sort of middle tier that it really doesn't matter who ends up getting the job because there's things that I've lost Uh, I've lost bids and then I've ended up on the shoot because the agency that won it, you know, they, they hired me as a camera operator and that's awesome. And so the more people you can meet, there's never anyone who's like, well, I hope you fail. And you know, it's, it's more like, I hope I get the client and I can hire you to be a part of it. And I feel the same way. Like I love getting business and I love when I get to reach out to people and say, Hey, can I pay you to do this? And it's not only like cool as a business owner to feel that success, but to, to be able to pay other people and to advance their creative careers is exciting. And, and it's an honor because I know that people that have made a huge difference for me as as I've grown and had opportunities to be able to provide that experience for other people is is something that, that matters to me a lot. And it means a whole lot to me. Um, but this whole thing, I'm going to take a sip of water. This whole thing is complicated the timing of it because I wanna I wanna get into these bigger productions and these multi day shoots with with bigger crews and bigger gear uh, and more polish and more post production, but my timing is a little tricky because this is the other transition right now. I am going to have a kid very soon. Jesse and I are, are expecting uh, we're thirty four weeks, uh, and so mid July we have a a baby on the way uh, if all goes according to timing and it could come, it could come tomorrow uh, is is the way these things can work. But so as I'm trying to think about my life over the next couple months, where when the kid comes, no discussion, I'm taking off a couple weeks and I want to be here for the kid and for Jesse to be the best partner and father and, you know, supporter that I can be. But that makes it tricky to schedule production, in, in a project-based world like the one in which I live, I my last scheduled gig uh, is in mid June with the symphony, and it's it's nervous it's nerve wracking to know that if something happened on that day, I'm out. If, if you know we go into labor, I've I've got to leave. That's not a conversation, and so. I've hesitated to put things on the schedule. I've tried to focus more on less, uh, not less time sensitive, but less time specific gigs. And so I'm taking a few more editing jobs and things where it's like, as long as this is done by X day, it doesn't matter when you work on it. So even if the kid comes, I can work on it between naps and, you know, or during naps and, and between this and that. And I can, you know, have a few hours rather than like, well, on this day I'm busy from nine to five. So, sorry, I can't help. So this timing makes it tricky because for a couple weeks, I want to scale it back. And then I want to dive in hard. While Jesse's on maternity leave, I want to book my schedule and I want to make money and I want to build some momentum. But in October and November, I'm taking those two months completely off for paternity leave. I'm going to be full-time at home And there may be little editing things that I entertain during that time, again, during naps and stuff like that. But I I really, my priority 100% for October, November will be the kid. And that makes it difficult as well with this leap to the next tier as I start to make new connections to say like, hey, let's work together, just not during October, November. And the nice thing is at this bigger tier, things take a little longer. They're on the schedule a little further ahead of time. Uh, it's more, it's, it's less, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and more, Hey, if we're doing this spot that needs to be done by January, we need to shoot it in, you know, September and we'll be editing during this doing revision. So there's, there's a lot more, uh, forecasting at that level, just due to the amount of resources that need to be coordinated for it. But this is the other transition of the transition to fatherhood. And it's as, as a first time father, I have no shortage of emotions and opinions and speculation about what it's going to be, but it's, it's difficult a, to imagine what life is going to be like. And you just hear things, you hear things all over the place. You hear like, you know, it's, it's an impact, but it, it's manageable. And like everyone still goes back to work with normal jobs. Like life goes on. It's not like your whole life is the kid but in many ways it is and then you hear people say like you know it is forget you know vacations and you know your hobbies and stuff this is a full time thing and when you're not you know taking care of the kid you're doing laundry it's not like you've got time to you know go hiking for a weekend or you know go on a little trip or it's it's over and so i'm sure the reality is somewhere between those two things but it's difficult to really imagine that and and to to Put myself in a place mentally where I can know what to expect is impossible. And I'm trying to focus on like a single goal. When you when you look at high performers, and this is the other thing. Before I go into this last section here, I want to put a disclaimer out there after I take a drink of water. I love self-improvement books. And I didn't really grow up reading a lot. Uh, After I met Jesse, I read the Harry Potter series and loved that. I've read, I've probably read like six books that are just fun books. I read uh, The Martian. I read The Da Vinci Code. And I'm sure there's, you know, book lovers out there would be like, well, you're reading the wrong books. You would read more if you read books like yada, yada, yada. But there's something about reading like self improvement i think self help is disingenuous but reading these these management books and these business books that really literally like get my heart moving and 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 get me excited and it's fun to to feel that energy and to read something that maybe isn't completely new to me but it's worded in a different way or it makes me think a little differently or it helps me identify and recognize something that I felt for a long time, but but didn't really know how to articulate. And then, therefore, I didn't know how to harness that and turn that into action or progress. And so, I mean, there's there's tons of books that I read that, that get me excited. And off the top of my head, uh, some of the ones I've read recently, I read uh, The Alter Ego Effect by... Hang on, I need to turn around. Uh. By Todd Herman. And The Alter Ego Effect is largely about recognizing that there's different parts of you. And and while you want to be yourself, you should maybe be a certain kind of person when you're in a meeting or when you're pitching or when you're trying to sell. And then when you're on set, you should be a different kind of person. And then when you're at home, you should be a different kind of person. And at first it can sound really fake of like, well, no, you should just be yourself. But the truth is, uh, the the way that you are, say, around your nieces or nephews or little kids – is a goofy, you know, less serious version of yourself, but it is still very much yourself. And then the way that you are, you know, during a job interview is also yourself, but it's a more serious, more buttoned up, more thoughtful version of yourself. And not to say that any of them aren't your true self, but knowing which pieces of yourself to bring to a situation and taking the time to be thoughtful before that situation to, to focus on those qualities and to make sure that you're, you're bringing the right ones to the table and the ones that will be the most useful to yourself and to the people that you're working with. And one of the examples, as I was reading the book, one of the examples I thought of in my own life was Ultimate Frisbee, where I love Ultimate Frisbee and playing and coaching. And when I coach my 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, I need to make sure that that I bring a certain patience to the game to allow for them to be more creative and them to experiment, and when I coached the men's team uh, for a few years, or or the high school teams have coached, it's it's a more disciplined a- approach, and it's not that you know I, I I can be meaner, but different people respond. Like as you get older, different people respond to different leadership styles and people have an expectation of like well a high school sport there should be you know some some pretty rigorous running and training and stuff which i'm not going to do to the grade schoolers so that's just the an example of what this alter ego effect is of of knowing hey who who are you going to bring to a given situation knowing that all of them are true versions of yourself you're just sort of picking and choosing and and curating a little bit which of your attributes you're really going to bring to the forefront uh, for something like that. And so I liked that book a lot. And it didn't really change my mind about who I was or it didn't help me be someone else. And some of the book was about, you know, stepping up to be higher, you know, uh, a higher performing individual. But I feel like I'm already there. I just need to recognize when to turn that on, when to turn it off, and things like that. And the book did a good job of, of helping me compartmentalize that a little bit. So I loved that book. I've loved um, some of Gary Vaynerchuk's books. I think they're a little cliche, um, and they don't all exactly apply to me. But I like his sentiment and his energy. I've liked Tim Ferriss' books. Uh, and I'm in the middle of reading Every Tool's a Hammer uh, by Adam Savage, which I'm only two chapters into, but I really like um, but there's a book called The One Thing, and there's a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. Uh, I can't think of who The One Thing is by, unfortunately. But that book, I feel like, does such a good job of helping you focus on what is the most important thing to you. And so so with all this sort of analysis and and self-help sort of mindset, I love these things. But I feel like my friends that i hang out with it's not like hey you want to talk about what book changed the way that you think and it's it's a bit vulnerable uh, by its very nature to say like well how are you changing what you're thinking like when you when you have a conversation with people i feel like it's instinctual to be confident uh and to to try to you know explain what you're feeling and what you've learned and admitting that you're you're learning new things and you don't know what you think about a certain topic can be difficult to articulate in a conversation, um, or to bring up. And so, I I don't have a lot of opportunities to reflect on this stuff sort of publicly with people because it's not something I talk about a lot. And it's I would love to, I would love to have a group of people where we, we met routinely and just had these bigger conversations. But I feel like people would roll their eyes as I invited them. Um, And my friend Jamie asked me recently uh, when she was in town, she's like, what is the one thing like St. Louis really needs? And it was such a simple question, but it made me think a lot about like, well, St. Louis has its problems, but it's also great in some ways, but what is the thing it really needs? And it made me think, and I started to say, I think it needs better public transit. I think it's very difficult to get around this city. Uh, And you need a car, and that makes certain things very difficult for people who can't afford all the stuff that comes with a car and all the gas. Um, And so if we had better public transit, not only would uh, people who can't afford cars have an easier go of it, but it would encourage even people who do have cars to ride You know, And and we would have more time to communicate. We wouldn't be sitting in traffic and yelling. I think texting and driving is an abomination. And that would be cut down. Because you can get on a bus or get on a a train and text just fine. And the train's not going to run into anybody because you're not paying attention. It may run into somebody who isn't paying attention because they're texting near the railroad tracks. But we, we can't fix all the problems. But then I started to think about the communication between... Uh, The different communities, the different socioeconomic uh, tribes in St. Louis, and and the communication between citizens and police. And it was such a cool question that was so simple, but it bred such a deep conversation. And I thought, man, it would be fun to get a few people together of varying ages and backgrounds and just say, hey, why don't we all get together tonight – and the one thing we're going to talk about is what a St. Louis need. And we're not looking to come out of it with an action plan. I just think it's fascinating to have that conversation. But I feel like most of my friends, historically, we don't do things like this. And so it's a little weird to like put something on the schedule, a discussion. Then you have to explain like, no, 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 it's not a, a meeting. We're not forming a committee. It's just we're getting together. and We're talking about this one thing. And so it's been difficult for that. Uh, and I heard – I was listening to the Hey Riddle Riddle podcast when they were guests on Jake and Amir's If I Were You. And they were talking about a party. One guy was talking about a party he went to where everyone prepared like a two-minute TED Talk about something that they're they're sort of an expert in. And he talked about budgeting. And it was just a two-minute little talk about budgeting. And everyone at this party did it. And he said it was awesome. And I think that's awesome, but I don't know who I would invite to this and who would participate and who wouldn't just roll their eyes and be like, no, I don't want to go to your TED Talk party. Um, And so I feel like I have these interests and things that I don't have a solid friend group that does these things currently. And I'm sure there's people in my group who would be willing and, and be interested and enthused, but it's a tough thing to build and I feel like I would be pulling people along, and I would have to really win them over, and I wouldn't necessarily have their buy-in from the beginning. Um, and I'd love to be wrong. If I'm wrong, send me a message. But that—that's the other part of this. Is as I go through these transitions, it's difficult to. Talk. I would love to say, let's talk about this book. Let's talk about the one goal. Um, and so this book, the one thing, keeps asking the question: What is the one thing that, if you did it, everything else would be either easier or unnecessary? And so you start to to pull back and say, well, as a video producer, you know, if I had more clients, that's the one thing that, you know, would make everything easier and and something's unnecessary uh because I would have more clients and more money. And then you step back further and say, like, well, what is that serving? Like having more clients isn't a goal. Is the goal to be able to work with a certain kind of client? Is the goal to have financial uh, freedom to say, okay. Well, then the one thing is to make one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, so that I can spend this much on insurance, this much on rent, uh, and have this much for food, and then I am happy. And if I have one hundred twenty dollars, is that the one th- one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year? Is that the one thing that makes everything else easier or unnecessary? And so you keep pulling back to say, well, what is the goal, and then what is the one thing that will make that goal? most easily attainable. And identifying that single goal is really, really tough. And this transition that I'm going through into fatherhood is a huge flip of the script because for literally my entire life, I have been able to be mostly selfish. I have been able to focus on my career and my hobbies and play ultimate and travel and spend my money on me and eat uh and get married to jesse and and go on trips and and go out to eat and have cable and internet and all these things where when i wanna focus when i wanna go to n a b and focus on on the progression of my career I can and i do and everything has sort of been serving myself and there's things about you know being a husband uh being being a partner where that's that's a goal. But it can't be your only goal, and that's where I, I asked people yesterday on Instagram, "What is your one goal?" And I didn't add any disclaimers or explanation. And there's a ton of good uh, answers, and there were a couple of funny joke answers. But uh, John Nevergall responded like he wants to turn his passion into an actual viable career. And John is a fantastic singer, opera performer, and and you know uh, theater actor. And yeah, if you can turn theater acting into a full-time job where you're able to support a family, that is awesome. And that is a true goal where you can know every day, hey, am I working toward that? And there was another answer, which I sort of realized would be my answer and in many ways was. And it was from a guy I haven't met yet named Judd. And Judd said to raise. uh, basically to raise a kid. He worded it more thoughtfully than that, and I wish I could pull it up, um, but I'm not going to take the time right now. But he said, to raise an empathetic, thoughtful, and and you know curious, enthusiastic kid. And as I'm about to be a father, I keep thinking, my goal is going to change, and my goal will be solely to be the best dad I can be and to take care of this kid. And I was thinking this morning, is that really my goal? And I feel like if it wasn't my one goal, it could still be something that gets accomplished tangentially, sort of accidentally. Well, not accidentally, but you know, because I, I'm pursuing another goal. And I thought, you know, if my only goal, say I have no ambitions about filmmaking anymore, uh, I don't care, my career is not a priority, my only priority is the kid, I feel like I could be sort of a boring dad if my only job was to cater to that kid. I think if my goal were to remain focused on my production and my career, which is which is my passion, and to John's point, like I am turning my passion into a pretty viable career and it's taking a while and it's it's growing and I'm learning along the way and getting better at it. But if I can be such an amazing producer where I build this thing my way and i make the right connections with the right people and i do it in a way that i can be proud of and i'm not screwing people over with contracts and nickel and diming people but i'm truly building something that i can be very very proud of which i am and i want to continue to build it till it's bigger and bigger in the process yes i'm going to take care of my kid and my kid will have the priority of my attention when we're together but i also need to be pushing myself forward as a role model as an influence on the kid by me having a focus on production and a focus on a hobby like that, I think it goes a long way to to influence and excite and enthuse a kid who sees how how interested I can be in something, and then I can help that kid follow their interests and 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 their hobbies and the things that make them curious. And Adam Savage's book right now is talking a lot about that, about how his parents, uh, his dad was an actor and an author and uh, an, an artist and did all sorts of you know visual medium stuff. And when Adam got interested in acting and stuff in high school and in cosplay and making costumes, his parents supported him so wholeheartedly that he was able to turn it into this career. And it wasn't that they imprinted their interests on him. But by them being dedicated to their own crafts, it allowed him to embrace th- his same dedication to his respective interests. And so that's what I'm starting to think. And, and, and as, I str- as I've struggled with, like, well, no, when I write it down, my goal needs to be to be the best dad I can be. But I wonder, isn't that the same thing as being the best producer I can be? And by separating those things and saying like, well, by being a good producer, does that make me a good dad? Or by being a good dad, can that make me a good producer? I feel like they're much more linked. And I've been struggling to articulate the difference and then feeling guilty when I would say, you know, I really do need to focus on my career. And for the next six months, I need to grow and I need to make money and I need to make new connections and new relationships with bigger agencies. And I also need to be a good dad. And to say I can only really have one of those be my one goal, I think isn't fair to the other. And to say like, oh, I'm just going to focus on the kid for the rest of 2019, that puts me in a bit of a crunch in 2020 to say, well, you know, I wish I had spent the last six months sort of harvesting relationships and and cultivating growth. But instead, I, I just focused on being a dad. And to to focus on, on production and have being a dad be a big part of that, I think, is the way that I need to think about it. But I don't know. I don't know. and I'm learning and I'm figuring this out as I go. And I, the kid's not even here yet. And I'm doing my best to sort of prepare myself. So what I've been dealing with lately is this transition. The transition from one tier of production to the next and the transition of having only lived for myself and... Uh, for the past several years for Jesse, to being devoted to a, a, a human that will need attention and love and financial support and emotional support and the fostering of their curiosities and experiences and, and raising the best kid that I can, it's it's tough to have these two transitions happen simultaneously. And so... That's what I'm spending a lot of my time reflecting on. And as I listen to financial advice and creative advice and career advice and personal growth advice and confidence advice and read these different books that I'm reading, I'm pulling all these gems that I'm looking at from new angles and it's, it's really exciting. And I, I'm i eager for the kid to arrive, but I'm also eager to continue to prepare myself to be this best producer and best dad that I can be in a way that I can continue to provide for for the kid and for our family and continue to grow and be satisfied creatively and be the absolute best dad that I can possibly be. So I'm figuring this thing out as I go. And if you want to talk about any of these things or you have experience with any of it, Like I said, it's been a difficult subject to breach and I've been sort of hesitant to just bring it up out of nowhere with the people that I've built friendships based on other things on for so long. Um, But if any of those friends are listening and they're like, hey, I would have a long philosophical conversation with you where none of us know the answers and we're just sort of trying to figure things out together and there's no way to be wrong. uh, Let me know. I'll meet you anywhere. We'll, uh, We'll have a good time. If you made it, I don't know how long this is, uh, and I'm not going to look, but thank you for listening. And if you did make it this far, I would love to know who actually listens to this. So, like Shoot me a little thing on Instagram, um, and it would mean a lot to me. Uh, I'm, I'm Colonel Sean on Instagram, as you could probably guess, uh, because you probably know me or you're my mom or something. But uh, thanks. Thanks for listening. And uh, next episode, I'll try to have a guest or something more exciting. Maybe a kid. We'll see. Bye.